Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. Well, it's Gordon. It's good to be back here with you. Great to be back. When we're talking about and exploring some naturalists, maybe you can just kind of give us the gist of what the naturalist is and, and what they do. Well, um, as we talked about last time, you can look at a naturalist two ways. One, philosophically, where they, it's an underlying assumption that there is no supernatural. And so we certainly don't mean it in that sense. We were referring to the naturalist as someone who just enjoys observing nature deeply yeah in whatever context and so Excellent. that's a that's a nutshell yeah very good and so it's, this really something that uh families um i think it's a reasonable goal to encourage uh this type of activity right so yeah. not that everyone's gonna claim the title naturalist but a good goal for the young kids Let's try to get their naturalist skills going here. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, we often, we don't want to conflate it with science necessarily. You, there's definitely overlap. A yep. scientist can be a naturalist, but you don't have to be a scientist to be a naturalist. Uh, a scientist is usually someone who employs the scientific method and a naturalist is mostly uh, studying nature. It is a study, but it's a study more from an observational perspective rather than an experimental one yeah so and often scientists need to be good naturalists especially if they're ecologists and they're not just crunching numbers they're looking at the the big picture yeah no so, that's a good distinction i think i think sometimes we can have an overemphasis on on doing mechanistic science and then forget the the right. simple joy of of naturalism yeah absolutely yeah so you've got some uh, selections well, for yeah, us today. A, a you had quite trouble, a bit, so feel free to cut me off. Yeah, you um, had trouble narrowing it down. Yeah. Um, now, I think I had quoted from Edwin Waiteel last time. You mentioned him at the end. It might be in the outtakes. But anyway, I was. I'm reading. Uh, he has a four book series uh, through the different seasons, and I'm reading wandering through the winter and. There was one section that I'll read. It's a, a, an extended quote. And um, he's, again, a lot of this is birds uh, because, uh, and that's great for Will. Will's more of a bird birds guy. Birds are better. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, well, we could discuss that. Off, That'll be another show. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe off the podcast. Um, but He's, he's, this is back in the fifties where he's going across the country on these big, long journeys and just writing, writing his experiences down. They, they took a, a little detour, uh, down to a place in the United States, not the one in Argentina called Patagonia, which is down in New Mexico, north of the border. And it's a, a wonderful, they, they stumbled across it because they didn't have it in their plans. He and his wife. And uh, it's a, a wonderful place, a refuge, bird refuge, where Western species meet 
eastern species meet northern species meet southern so species. Like so it's like Swiss family Robinson. It is like the mecca of a lot of birders. Yeah. And so, so I would recommend I that. I either have, man, I'm, I've been to a Patagonia State Park, but I thought it was Arizona. But maybe well, it was in New maybe, Mexico. Maybe I'm. Keep going. It, it, anyway, might, it might be the place. But uh, he, he has uh, some insightful thoughts after he saw so many different kinds of birds. He said, I sat there relaxed, thinking of nothing, warmed by the sun, aware with animal senses of all the world around me. My outlook, too, shifted back to an earlier, simpler time. At such a time with awakening childhood perceptions, we walk through the out-of-doors accompanied by wonder and delight. In later years, we learn the names of the things that long ago we saw and wondered at. We catalog them in our minds, and some of the freshness fades away. Deservedly, the pursuit of factual knowledge holds a high place. Knowing the wildflowers, naming all the birds without a gun, these are admirable attainments. But there is always a residue of sadness when we learn the name and lose the wonder of the living thing itself. Mm, interesting. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's a really good lesson, especially if you really love nature and you just say, okay, I've got to learn all of these things. And I know I've fallen in, I've got to learn the name, learn the scientific name, and maybe even learn a lot of the natural history. In one sense, it's great, but you want it to foster a deeper appreciation rather than to squash the wonder that you had at the first. Now, I've learned a lot about box turtles since that first moment. I was either five or six, that first moment when I saw box turtles right across the street from my house in, in Annapolis, Maryland. And even though the two turtles were very shy, they were boxed up, they weren't being very interesting <laughs> behaviorally, but they were you know, beautiful specimens. Yeah. And I just was sat amazed at, and, and I just remember distinctly that wonder, that sense of wonder. Didn't know really anything about turtles or anything then. And now I've layer upon layers upon layers of knowledge after a PhD in that very same species. Yeah. But I'll never replace, it'll re never replace that first Oh, that's a great, wonder. You, you put that in really, really good context for us there. So. Yeah. And then he goes on quickly to say, I'll finish up here. We become specialists and our interests shrink. I know a woman who is interested only in warblers, another who is interested only in female ducks. There is more to the out of doors than a schoolroom. And much has been lost when the sight of a hermit thrush stirs in our consciousness merely the scientific name Hylocycla. that ring a bell? Maybe it's changed since then. I think then. it's probably changed. Yeah, Hylos, well, here, this is written in the early 60s. 61, I think, was published. Hylocicla gutata. But simple enjoyment of universal nature with no other end in mind, this too has its importance. The fortunate indeed are those who know this enjoyment to the end of their days. Hmm. So there's nothing wrong with adding knowledge onto that wonder. You just don't want that knowledge to squash it. Yeah. And, and, that, and that is titled Wandering Wandering Through, through winter. winter. That's lovely. Edwin Wayteel, and you probably, they're out of print, so you can find them on, you know, search on Amazon or other 
a books or or whatever and you might get a deal some of them can be pretty expensive because there are these old hardbacks you know but the other three are i think north with the spring autumn across america and i think journey through the summer or something like that excellent but and he and his wife were yeah. they kind of teamed up together didn't they they yeah they drove you know across the country different routes and just he wrote about his trips and experienced the seasons and the seasons and the geology mostly biology the natural history it's a uh, he's he was a big big natural history writer back back in the day fantastic I'm going to share one sure. of my favorites yeah, here. Yeah, that's great. Go for it. Yeah. So this is from Life Histories of North American Birds, which is a, a many-part series um, that was initiated um, by the federal government actually commissioned this work to be done, a compilation of all the life histories of the birds of North America. Oh, nice. And this is from the, the National Museum commissioned this work, and the, the editor is Arthur Cleveland Bent. And so it really spanned decades uh, from 1919 into the 1950s. And I think this was published uh, in about 1943. And it kind of gets that naming. Um, and, and you kind of alluded to this, uh, that, that process of naming or discovering the name mm -hmm. of a creature is often meaningful. And it can also, you know, maybe cause us to, to lose a bit of that wonder at the same time. Um, this entry is about, uh, this is from the, uh, the North American jays, crows, and titmice, uh, Arthur Cleveland Bent. And mm -hmm. here we go. He starts uh, with the habits of a certain bird called the, the Canada Jay. We'll see if you guys out there recognize it. The name Canada Jay, accepted by ornithologists, is seldom used by the backwoodsman, the hunter, the trapper, and the wanderer in the north woods, who knows this familiar bird by a variety of other common names. The name most commonly applied to the bird is Whiskey Jack, with no reference, however, to any fondness for hard liquor. <laughs> The old Indian name, Whiskachon, or Whiskajon, has been corrupted to Whiskey John and then to Whiskey Jack. It is also often called Camp Robber, Meat Bird, Grease Bird, Meat Hawk, Moose Bird, Lumberjack, <laughs> Venison Hawk, and Hudson Bay Bird. Wow. All of which are quite appropriate and expressive of the bird's character and behavior. Although cordially disliked by the trapper and the hunter, because it interferes with their interests, this much maligned bird has its redeeming traits. It greets the camper when he first pitches camp with demonstrations of welcome and shares his meals with him. It follows the trapper on his long trails through the dark and lonesome woods where any companionship must be welcome. It may be a thief and at times a nuisance, but its jovial company is worth more than the price of its board. Now, what's the official common name again? Uh, now... Uh, usually called the Gray Jay. Okay. But a lot of folks still do call it the Canada Jay. Then how does it look compared to Stellar's Jay? Really unlike a lot of the other Jays. It doesn't have a crest. Okay. And so we typically think of Jays as having those crests like the right. Eastern Blue Jay or our Stellar's Jay out here. Um, but there are a couple of, of uh, Jays without crests. Yeah, isn't the isn't Scrub Jay. Scrub Jay. Yeah. Yeah. The Scrub Jays of the West. And there's a Green Jay down in Texas and right. Mexico. I can't remember if they have a crest or not. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this is a, it's one of those species that seems attracted to human yeah. uh, activity. That's great. Yeah. And they, they are pleasant. Often you'll see them where there's not much wildlife stirring in the, in the dead of winter. Um, they'll, they'll hear you and they'll show up and, and kind of, uh, it's, it's really kind of a gift. 
Right. Yeah. Again, I, I, I wanted to reiterate the point that knowing the name is not necessarily a death knell to, to wonder. In fact, it can open a Pandora's box of once you know the name, you can then seek out so much more information about yeah. it. And it, it really is on, gives you entree into information. We are meant to name things. And Adam, that was his first charge. One of his first charges is to name the, the animals. Yeah. But you just don't want it to say, oh, once I've got the name, I understand this beast. It's, no, you don't you know fiddly. Um, you, there's, there's a lot to know, but it, it is a starting point. Yep. And um, just a, a, a quote that uh, from another one of my favorite writers on natural history, he's a, he's a modern named Tor, Tor Hansen. Yeah. And although the more modern writers, uh, it's much more permeated with evolution talk, which is annoying for me, but I've sort of gotten immune to it. Yep. But it can be dangerous for some people. But he does say in his book called Feathers, in chapter the birds of paradise so his name's tor hansen it's spelled t-h-o-r like thor but it's pronounced tor it's uh this chapter's birds of paradise and he says when they were up in northern australia viewing birds of paradise not far from you know, just across the strait from new guinea yeah he, he says uh let's see start here though we may set out intending to watch birds we don't often meet the definition, quote, to observe attentively, typically over a period of time. Our binoculars seem to have minds of their own, swinging quickly away as soon as we can put a name on the species. Oh, yeah. House wren, laughing gull, flicker, crow, chat. It's a dangerous trap because the true wonder of birding lies in the watching soaking up the fine details of plumage, behavior, and habit. Even common birds do uncommon things, and every sighting is worth more than a glance and a tick on a checklist. I try to be vigilant, but on the one day I saw a bird of paradise, I totally blew it. Huh. And he goes down farther. He goes on to say, it was... It was there, the northern Australia, it was there on a muddy road through the rainforest that I spotted a glossy black bird perched high up in the canopy. Its bill curved gently downward, and its iridescent green throat flashed in the morning sunlight, giving the game away. Victoria's rifle bird, I noted and moved on, eager to see as much as possible in the short time we had to explore. In my haste, I passed up the opportunity to witness one of nature's greatest displays, a living lesson in the sexual allure of plumage. Had I truly watched that bird, I might have seen him puff out his brilliant green throat and arch his wings to perform a perfect ebony circle surrounding his head. He would have tilted his beak to the sky and opened it wide, exposing the vivid golden skin of his mouth as he sang out in loud, raspy notes. With luck, a tawny brown female would have landed facing him, bobbing her head, raising her own wings, and joining in an elaborate swaying dance back and forth 
along the branch. Nature films can't help but set this flamboyant spectacle to tango music, and it's a perfect fit. Instead of this, my experience of the Victoria's rifle bird consisted of a single check mark beside a pitcher and a field guide. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Ah, he's, uh, he's. So is, I, I really like, cause he's really, you know, he, he. He exposes he himself. himself. You yeah. know, he's a, he's a. He's honest. Accomplished natural. Yeah, he is. I've had a couple interactions with him on email and, and, uh, on the phone and he is a, a humble, humble guy. No, that's neat. You know, these, you can tell he's European by his writing cause they talk about ticking instead well, of I think, listers. Well, well, he is American. Um, is he American? Yeah, he's American. Oh, he said ticking maybe, the, the list. But yeah. maybe he's picked up some of that from Yeah, he's just being savvy. No, it's interesting. I think having your motives exposed when you're out in the, out in the world, out in nature, um, ha- being sensitive to your conscience, the Lord's teaching us through all these things. Mm-hmm. And um, I definitely have fallen prey to doing this kind of thing. Oh, Went I Went on a big trip and- I have you, too. You see a, an absolutely incredible bird for the second time, or maybe even the first time, and you're ready to keep going. You just want to add to that you list. Add to the list. And, yeah. and with reptiles on my field trips, we, we want to break a, a you know, species record for that field trip, like how many we can get. But that, that getting the record, you know, however many species we can get on that trip, is it doesn't preclude looking at other details. Yeah. And we often just rush to the field guide and try to learn about it. It's like, well, why don't you, you saw it in real life. Why don't you sit on the rock and actually study it yourself right? rather than get it secondhand from the field guide? Now, if you can't see it, maybe it's just sitting on a rock doing nothing. Well, great. I mean, you can't force it to behave for you, but give it a chance. And then if it doesn't do anything, then maybe you can augment your, your meager uh, knowledge of your own, ex- your own experience might yeah. be meager, but you can then go to the field guide or book and, and learn more about it if you're curious, but try to get it for yourself. Right. Yeah, no, that's good. And these are unscripted experiences. You know, you're, you're, sometimes you're going to go out and get skunked and you're not going to see much of anything. And other times... You'll finally just be sitting still for a moment, pausing, and then all of a sudden, a flock will show up, or you'll see something move in the brush, and then you'll know there's a skink there, um, and, or some other creature that you weren't necessarily uh, looking to see. I think mm-hmm. it's most of the time I've spent out has been been for the purpose of birding, but oh, so many other amazing creatures happen by your way mm-hmm. uh, while you're out there, yeah. and so. Uh, I think sometimes we can get it in our mind that this is the goal of the trip and you have a certain group of species, um, but um, be open to surprises. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, we were, when we were filming Ryan the Dance Earth, we were down in the Sonoran Desert at our hotel in uh, Tucson and we went out on the golf cart roads at night looking for various, probably herbs, knowing yeah. yeah. But we were ready for anything. And we were walking along the golf cart paved trail and we saw this uh, with our flashlights, we saw a sun spider. It's in the movie, the Sulfugids. Mm. They're an arachnid, but we spotlighted it and the camera got there. And then this crane fly 
which are flies that look like big mosquitoes, started to flutter around our flashlights, which served for a great opportunity for the for the sun spider. Oh, cool. They, they don't like light, but they seized on the opportunity and the cr- just jumped up and nabbed the crane fly and just gobbled it up right on Oh, the, man. And you got that on camera, too. Yeah. That's fabulous. Um, and we were looking for, you know, other other things. So. That's neat. Um, I'm going to just read a sure. little bit here from my, and I kind of, I kind of put these guys in the category of explorer naturalist, the guys from the late 18th century and, and a lot of the, of the 19th century. And this one is William Bartram. Okay. And yeah. kind of a classic of Bartram is called the travels of William Bartram. And just to give you a sense for, for how old this is, I think this is 17. Wow. First, first published in 1773. Wow. And, um, and I, I was reading another similar era type of explorer naturalist tale. I think it was David Douglas uh, last week. And they both, they started in very similar ways. Both, both Englishmen that had to hop on a ship at some point and started off in stormy, in stormy seas. And so uh, one thing I love about his writing is he, he just kind of captures uh, the moment in a, in a really honest and, and fun way. Um, and so here is William Bartram. Uh, it says here, the, uh, the author sets sail from Philadelphia and arrives at Charleston from whence he begins his travels. At the request of Dr. Fothergill of London to search the Floridas and the western parts of Carolina and Georgia for the discovery of rare and useful productions of nature, chiefly in the vegetable kingdom, in April 1773, I embarked for Charleston, South Carolina, on board the brigantine Charleston Packet. Captain Wright, the brig, Captain Mason, being in company with us and bound to the same port. We had a pleasant run down the Delaware, 150 miles to Cape Henlopen, the two vessels entering the Atlantic together. For the first 24 hours, we had a prosperous gale and were cheerful and happy in the prospect of a quick and pleasant voyage. But alas, how vain and uncertain are human expectations. How quickly is the flattering scene changed? The powerful winds, now rushing forth from their secret abodes, suddenly spread terror and devastation. And the wide ocean, which a few moments past was gentle and placid, is now thrown into disorder and heaped into mountains whose white curling crests seem to sweep the skies. Wow, that's great. Yeah, just uh, that prose is just so much more. Yeah, it's rich. Yeah, so much it's more very rich. rich. Yeah. Let's see here. Now, I think I... Do you have uh, a favorite herp naturalist? Anyone stand out? Oh, yeah. Out? Actually, I do. I actually brought one. Oh, good. We'll get to but, it. But uh, this is from Sand County Almanac, Aldo Leopold. And uh, it's uh, in the chapter Natural History. And it's just talking about how you don't have to be this professionally trained scientist to add to the accumulating body of knowledge. knowledge. Here, he says, another exploration, this time literally of a backyard, is a study of the song sparrow Hmm. conducted by an Ohio housewife. Yes. You may have heard this story, have you? Uh, I've read this, uh, but it's been a long time. Okay. This commonest of birds had been scientifically labeled and classified a hundred years ago and forthwith 
forgotten. <laughs> Our Ohio amateur had the notion that in birds, as in people, there are things to be known over and above name, sex, and clothes. <laughs> she began trapping the song sparrows in her garden, marking each with a celluloid anklet. Now, that, I guess that was before the, the current... Well, celluloid was a sort of a thing prior to plastics. Yeah. But anyway, with a celluloid anklet. And thus, she was able to identify each individual by its colored marker to observe and record their migrations, feedings, bitings, singings, matings, nestings, and deaths. In short, to decipher the inner workings of the sparrow community. In 10 years, she knew more about sparrow society, sparrow politics, sparrow economics, and sparrow psychology than anyone <laughs> had ever learned about any bird. Science beat a path to her door. Ornithologists of all nations seek her counsel. Oh, that's great. And, you know, she was just... She uh, wanted just, to know. She wanted to know. So there's nothing, you know, degrees don't necessarily, I mean, they're a help. Yeah. But they can be a hindrance. And what you need is just wonder and curiosity, a tenacity. You need discipline, diligence. Now... Again, you can just enjoy nature at that lay level, but she just really wanted to know more. She went for it. She went for it and, and became he, the world authority on song sparrows. Absolutely. Uh, it's funny. The uh, Immediately, I, I thought of the scientific name of that bird, um, Melispiza melodia. Uh, and oh, yeah. it really is one of the more common songbirds, period. But the fact that she... Uh, she went for it and basically <laughs> yes. did the 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 value of two phd projects probably yeah um, for sure and but she didn't care about that she just wanted to know yeah lovely yeah. and that that is just a lesson for all of us yes and especially we may have touched on this before but it's very easy for curriculum to because of our adherence to trying to stay with the curriculum and make sure that we don't miss anything because then we become enslaved to it. I've said this before on other times, maybe with, with you, that we become slaves of curriculum. Mm -hmm. And in our efforts to get through the curriculum with our kids, we become Captain Von Trapp and we, we squelch the love of learning. And then learning about natural history becomes a drudgery or biology. So you know, going out and exploring and catching frogs, that's fun. But as soon as it takes on this aura of, you know, curriculum, yeah, then all of a sudden, it magically, all of the fun and wonder gets sucked out of it. So the key, and this is tricky, is to, and there's nothing wrong with school and school work, but you want it, you want it to be fun yeah and now sometimes if the the child is just god has the his his future calling is to be a mechanical engineer and he just doesn't have a whole lot of interest you know innately yeah sometimes you just sort of have to slog through it best you can but as far as we are able let's just try to foster an appreciation and not get too cranky. We want to 
come alongside of that natural wonder that kids have. And too often that is squashed yeah. by our efforts to stay with the curriculum. I'd rather get through, and this is maybe, you know, even I can even say it of my own curriculum. I've written, you know, written Ryan the Dance textbook. And, but I would rather the parent get through with Johnny or Susie 80% of it and have them have an awesome time. <laughs> yeah. Than to get through all of it and hate biology. Yeah. It's a, it's a challenge. It's it a is. challenge for the homeschooling parent. It's a challenge for the teacher. Even when the teacher loves the material, it can be right. difficult to balance yeah. rigor and, uh, and knowledge versus maintaining and yeah. building on that curiosity. And, to, and sometimes a parent, because they're just so enthusiastic about learning, they can be so overly enthusiastic that it can be off-putting to the kids. So you got the sort of psychology that you're balancing, saying, I want to show enough interest to sort of cause them to get curious. But if I'm like, you know, spittle flecked in my enthusiasm, you know, and the-, the That's kid, a word you don't hear every day. Yeah. They can just like, oh, you're just too weird and I don't see what you're getting at. Yeah. Um, and they can be shooed away from it, from- our over enthusiasm. Yeah. So it's just uh, you know, you got to know your kids and you got to you got to know how to play your cards and try to lure them in, bait the trap so to speak. Yeah, and 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 I think and I've I've mentioned this before and I think we've talked about this a little bit today even really important to make the distinction between science and just experiencing time in nature. Right. Mm -hmm. I think we use that term or pop culture kind of uses that term uh, interchangeably. They just they call it all science. Mm -hmm. But God's creation isn't science. Right. Science is an endeavor we've crafted to try to understand it more fully. But the two aren't synonymous at right. all. You can you can spend so much time as a hunter, as a fisher, just camping. Mm -hmm. You name it. You're getting high quality time out there. Uh, understanding how uh, this right. amazing so, system works. Right. So often a, an angler who is really, really in touch with the fish knows the ecology, biology, and he might not know some of the technicalities in the names, but he, in one sense, might know more about this fish than an ichthyologist. Yep. Because it's organic, it's experiential. And so natural history, it just, there's a lot of overlap with natural history and biology, but yeah. if you define it, natural history is more uh, studying of plants and animals from an observational perspective rather than experimental. So, yep. And that's even if we're, our kids aren't growing up to learn to be a scientist, they can certainly learn how to be a naturalist. Yeah. And, and they can go into all sorts. There's all sorts of people who are of many different occupations that have nothing to do with biology and yet they have a amateur natural history hobby yep so that's something that's great for i think all christians to i mean not a requirement it's a get to not a got to right no i love that and you know i think some of the some of the best data we have for say wildlife management we talk aldo leopold as a wildlife manager we kind of went there last time 
talking to hunters and fishers who are out there is one of the wisest things a wildlife manager can do. Mm -hmm. And if you're a hunter or fisher, you get that phone call or you get that survey at the end of the season. How many of these did you catch? Did you shoot one of these? Where did it, where did it take place? And there's some follow-up that happens. Um, and that's, uh, that's another way to collect good information. Uh, about how about how this certain ecosystem or this watershed is faring uh, so we can have mm-hmm. wise management yeah. in the future. Might as well ask the people who spend the most time out there. Well, we're getting to the near the end, but do you have any last quotes or are you, are you uh, done I don't, on your I don't books? think I do. I think maybe ending with this, um, you've got one? I've got one. I'll end I'll with, just say, I'll one, say one I'll thing sure. and then I'll let you have the last word. Uh, I was just going to mention King Solomon. Uh, I think it's in Second Kings. Oh yeah, near the end. For, is it First First Kings four thirty four four thirty four? Yeah, thank you. And uh, and we hear about all these amazing things that Solomon did and knew all of these songs and all these uh, parables. And then we hear that he he spoke of of plants mm-hmm. and uh, creatures the that grows out of the walls. Exactly. And the cedar of Lebanon. And so remember to look to, remember to look to the Bible for some, from heroes uh, who are naturalists, certainly, mm-hmm. definitely Solomon, definitely Jeremiah. Yep. Yeah. And some of those characters, yeah. Adam, Adam, certainly. One quote from John Muir, actually it's, he is tasked uh, in this part of the book from, this book called My First Summer in the Sierra. He's tasked to sort of supervise this shepherd because the shepherd, you know, needed some supervision apparently. So, uh, <laughs> apprentice. So, John Muir was tasked to sort of go along with his shepherd and his description of the shepherd. It shows you that you can be in the out of doors and not necessarily be in tune with it. Like John, John Muir studied it as a naturalist, whereas the shepherd, I mean, he spent all of his time in the outdoors and in a lot of ways probably knew it organically. But this humorous description of the shepherd is just hilarious. <laughs> Our shepherd is a queer character and hard to place in this wilderness. His bed is a hollow made in red, dry, rot, punky dust beside a log which forms a portion of the south wall of the corral. Here he lies with his wonderful, everlasting clothing on, wrapped in a red blanket, breathing not only the dust of the decayed wood, but also that of the corral, as if determined to take a maniacal snuff all night after chewing tobacco all day. Following (laughs) the sheep, he carries a heavy six-shooter swung from his belt on one side and his luncheon on the other. The ancient cloth in which the meat fresh from the frying pan is tied, serves as a filter through which the clear fat and gravy juices drip down on his right hip and leg in clustering stalactites. (laughs) This oleaginous formation is soon broken up, however, and diffused and rubbed evenly into his scanty apparel. By sitting down, rolling over, crossing his legs while resting on logs, etc., making shirt and trousers watertight and shiny. His trousers, in particular, have become so adhesive with the mixed fat and resin that pine needles, thin flakes and fibers of bark, hair, mica, scales, and minute grains of quartz, hornblende, etc., feathers, seed wings, 
moth and butterfly wings, legs and antennae of innumerable insects or even whole insects, such as the small beetles, moths, and mosquitoes, with flower petals, pollen, dust, and indeed bits of all plants, animals, and minerals of the region adhere to them and are safely embedded. (laughs) That was a long (laughs) list. So that though far from being a naturalist, he collects fragmentary specimens of everything and becomes richer than he knows. His specimens are kept passably fresh too by the purity of the air and the resiny bituminous beds into which they are pressed. Man is a microcosm, at least our shepherd is, or rather his trousers. These (laughs) precious overalls are never taken off, and nobody knows how old they are, though one may guess by their thickness and concentric structure. Instead of wearing thin, they wear thick, and in their stratification (laughs) have no small geological significance. (laughs) Oh, he's having so, too much yeah, fun. Yeah, he was having fun on that one. <laughs> anyway. That's fabulous. Oh. Well. He's a little, so, so some creativity in there too, and that's kind of classical Christian education, right? Uh, practice some writing skills, practice some kind mm-hmm. of creative thinking. It's uh, given, given the right subject, you know, a little writer can be awakened yeah. there. Yeah. The, John Muir did a lot of writing about the beauty of, of nature and gave God the glory. But also, he just had a little tangent here where he just did a character sketch on this shepherd who was just filthy, filthy, filthy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to end it. Thanks, Gordon. Yeah, thank you, Will. Enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. We'll see you. Bye.